The journalist Walter Lippmann once wrote, The environment with which our public opinions deal is refracted in many ways, by censorship and privacy at the source, by physical and social barriers at the other end, by scanty attention, by the poverty of language, by distraction, by unconscious constellations of feeling, by wear and tear, violence, monotony. These limitations upon our access to that environment combine with the obscurity and complexity of the facts themselves to thwart clearness and justice of perception, to substitute misleading fictions for workable ideas, and to deprive us of adequate checks upon those who consciously strive to mislead. Understanding the years of lead requires grappling with these issues due to the obscurity of the facts, the complexity of the connections, and the problems of conflicting narratives. The Aldo Moro case is definitely no different. When we talk about censorship and privacy at the source, we have to contend with the Christian Democrats and their factionism, from the Forza Novisti, aligned with Donat Katin, to the Dorotei, aligned with Moro's center-left, not to mention Andreotti's faction, which held power during the period. It does appear that some of Moro's letters, discovered after the kidnapping, might have been censored from public view, at least until 1991. But again, here we're left with open questions and secrecy. The histories provided by the brigadists in recent decades have been helpful, but they also obscure much. They conflict with one another at times and leave big, big holes unfulfilled. Meanwhile, we have a big language barrier, which makes some details more recondite than necessary, and where our own role is most instrumental, we often find U.S. audiences interested in only superficial narratives and conspiracy theories. There are constellations of feeling that Lippmann wrote of, which outline what we want to be true and not necessarily what is. On top of that, the history itself loses its relevance as it's passed down through generations. So what do we have to defend us from those who consciously strive to mislead, as Lippmann put it? Well, we can delve as fully as possible into the details of the facts as they occurred. By stringing together narratives and understanding various perspectives, we can understand the confluence of information and what it shows us. I'll try to do that here in this episode, which covers one of the most important events of the 1970s in world history and one of the darkest days of the Italian Republic, the kidnapping of Aldo Moro and the massacre on Via Fama. Hi everyone, I'm Alexander Reed Ross, your host, and welcome to the Years of Lead pod. The first thing to discuss is the infrastructure of the Rome Column, which by the end of 1977 was the biggest in number of the Red Brigade's columns, though to that point, perhaps less important structurally than the Turin Column. The Rome Column was comprised of a municipal directorate under which were assembled the territorial brigades and the fronts. The key territorial brigades lay in the Torre Speccata in the north, Tiburtino, where some important clashes took place, the university city, and of course, the more working-class districts of Centocele in the east and Primavale in the west. It had grown from the initial efforts of the brigade's co-founder, Alberto Franceschini, to make inroads in Rome during 1973-1974, during which period he scouted out some sites and even stalked some politicians. After Franceschini's arrest, 
Mario Moretti established the first base on Via Gradoli in 1975, and it was inhabited by the couple, Valerio Morucci and Adriana Ferranda. The next base was set up in Monteverde, which had seen big clashes around the San Giovanni di Dio area between Autonomisti and the fascists of the Movimento Sociale Italiano. This is where Moretti would stay with Barbara Bolzerani until, in 1977, their car was stolen with a load of BR materials. At that point, they thought they were too compromised and they moved into the Via Gradoli spot, while Morucci and Ferranda had to move into a different base established the previous year in Via Chiabrera. Now, that space in Via Chiabrera was supposed to be for mimeographing, typewriting, and management meetings, but people were worried that the noise would bother neighbors, so it flipped to residential. And last but not least was a base in Borgo Pio, where Bruno Seghetti lived. The bases were mostly for what they called the illegal immigrants, fully clandestine members who took part in the most brazen acts of murder and violence. The bases were compartmentalized so that only one other person knew about their existence, defraying some of the cost of interrogations in the event of an incarcerated militant. They were small, fairly dingy, and usually in very obscure areas, so their inhabitants were very paranoid and haunted by their own misdeeds. That said, they were less downtrodden than a lot of the other brigadists around Italy. The Romans were known more for enjoying the sun, food, and recreation, as opposed to Turin, where it was a more gray and sullen affair. On top of the territorial brigades, which mostly did propaganda and agitation, there were the fronts. The fronts operated in all columns, Genoa, Turin, Milan, and in Rome, the most important were logistics and the counter, which stood for the anti-counter-revolutionary front. Obviously, the former was operated mostly by Moretti and involved things like rent payments, salary dispersals, car theft and management, weapons distribution, operational planning, and so forth. The counter was more responsible for surveilling targets and carrying out research. And last but not least, you have the national structures that are woven into the Rome column, including typography and propaganda. These are important and fairly self-explanatory. Propaganda, typography, they're the things that enabled the steady diffusion of their ideas and aesthetic. So, in October 1977, the Roman column's management meets in a fairly large villa located in Velletri, a scenic and historic commune on the southern edge of the Roman metropolitan area, with Moretti representing the strategic command. Moretti says Moro has been deemed the target, quote, as a direct attack against the DC, both through the impact of the kidnapping itself and the fact that Moro was key to, quote, international dependencies and the anti-proletarian aims of Christian democracy. So, here are Marucci, Gallinari, Barbara Balzerani, and Bruno Seghetti deciding to kidnap Aldo Moro at the behest of Moretti on behalf of the strategic command of the Red Brigades. As to why Moro was chosen over, say, Giulio Andreotti or Amintore Fanfani or even Enrico Berlinguer, 
who they also stalked, the explanations are fairly unsatisfactory. We hear mostly that Moro was the softest target, he didn't have the same kind of security detail, but as we'll see, this is belied by other statements made by the brigades, as well as his extensive security escort. We do know that the counterfront had spent a long time monitoring Moro's movements. Lauro Azzolini of the logistics front told Giorgio Bocca, quote, we could have kidnapped Moro both in Via Fani and in the church of Santa Chiara, where he went to mass every morning. The kidnapping in the church was ruled out because it was too risky, even from a political point of view. Meanwhile, Moro's escort was divided, a part remained near the cars and a part followed him into the church, so we should have been prepared for a double simultaneous action. A slight mismatch in the timing could make it fail. There were always people in the church and in front of the church at mass time. It was impossible to avoid the risk of injuring someone, and we absolutely did not want the action to have terrorist characteristics. We wanted it to be clear that it was a military action directed against the state and its senior representative. Also in Viafani, there was a theoretical possibility of hitting some passers-by, but very limited. In his autobiography, Prospero Gallinari hits basically the same points. First, the people on whom we should intervene are too separated from each other to allow us to neutralize them in a millimeter precision of time at the church. Moro is at the Pridio, two men of his escorts at the back of the room, and the others in the street. Second, there's too much chaos around the church, kids running around, women with shopping bags, police regulating traffic. We risk botched involvement of strangers in the middle of combat with disastrous effects in every sense. And here's Raffaele Fiore, the young man from Puglia who had been operating in Turin, explaining his understanding at the time. I learned that the various investigations had concentrated on a single objective, Aldo Moro, at the, at the beginning, it was assumed that the action would take place when the president of the DC was in the church of Santa Chiara, and the participation of a certain number of comrades had been foreseen. There were, however, too many people and the risk was quite high. In the logic of operations, a group of comrades had been identified, each of whom should have been interested in one aspect. Regular militants from various columns had been alerted, and Patrizio Pecci and I should have left Turin. Subsequently, given the difficulty of coordinating the different intervention groups and having calculated the unforeseen events in the event of an attack inside the church, really too many, it was decided to continue the investigation to find other points and other moments in which it was possible to act. I, meanwhile, had been informed by the executive that I was to participate in an action in the capital whose nature was unknown to me. After all, it wasn't important to know the specifics, it was enough to know that it was a big deal. By changing the place of action, therefore no longer the Church of Santa Chiara, the number of participants was also reduced, and Pecci, for example, was left out, and was never made aware of what was being prepared. Along with Turin column member Raffaele Fiore, a member from Milan named Franco Bonisoli was to be the only other brigadist from outside of Rome to participate in the action. Bonisoli later told journalist Sergio Zavoli that everything was still focused on the trial of the Red Brigade's historic nucleus. 
The killing of Fulvio Croce had been directly related to his activities around the trial. The move to attacking those involved in the prisons was only in relation to the presence of the brigadists behind bars. Now, the brigades wanted to put on a counter-trial. We had for some time the idea of carrying out what we call the counter-trial, Bonisoli told Zavoli. That is, taking a big personality of the state, or a representative of the seam, the imperialist state of the multinationals, and placing ourselves as the counter to the great trial that was being done or to the Red Brigades through the companions of the so-called historic nucleus, the first who were arrested. In 1976, we began to think seriously about this thing, and with some comrades, we went to Rome to start a certain type of investigation. One thing that the counterfront observed is that Moro's convoy always goes through Via Fani, and from there it starts to take different routes. It was clear by winter that this is the place the action is going to happen. Fiore says he was invited to Rome at that point, and he stays in Velletri at the villa there while visiting. Going into Rome for a couple of days, he's taken to the site of Via Fani by Morucci or Moretti to go over the tactics. So, why did they choose that specific intersection? In point of fact, the funny story I told in the previous episode about Pino Rauti having been a witness to the kidnapping was not at all an accident. The Rome column of the Briate Rosse had studied Rauti's movements after the Piazza della Loggia massacre, preparing an action that would have either killed, maimed, or kidnapped the fascist paramilitary leader. My money's on killed. The plan was cancelled at the last minute, but for the reason of this stakeout, that intersection of Via Fani and Via Stressa was well known to the Red Brigades, so that's why they chose it. Via Fani is a busy street as it approaches the intersection of Via Stressa, with a closed bar under renovations to the side that has a low wall between its shuttered windows and the hedge. On the wall is scrawled in black paint, Walter Lives, a chilling reminder of Walter Rossi, the comrade from Lotto Continua, killed by fascists in the autumn of 1977. At the corner is a florist named Antonio, with a big black coat and thinning hair slicked back over his head, and he posts up there pretty much every day with his van full of flowers. The plot as it's developed by the Rome Column with the help of Raffaele Fiore from the Turin Column and Franco Bonisoli from the Milan Column, is going to involve 10 members in all. There's going to be a militant on the upper part of Viafani who will signal the presence of Moro's escort by raising a bouquet of flowers. A car with diplomatic license plates will pull in front of the escort, stopping at the stop sign on Via Stressa. At this point, A fire team of four brigadists will storm the escort from the side of the street, breaking into two subunits, one for the first car and the other for the second. In each subunit, one of the shooters is assigned to kill the driver and the other the passenger. That's six militants so far, with another who will move to the rear of the cars to block the road with a machine gun, and two more at the front of the intersection to deflect oncoming traffic with long guns. Lastly, the 10th member will reverse onto the adjoining street and drive one of the three getaway cars. 
While he lives in Turin through the winter, Fiore sometimes goes back to Rome and meets in the Velletri villa with the clandestine militant from the Milan column, Franco Bonisoli. They meet there with other clandestine members of the Rome column to go over the whole thing. Fiore explained in the book Lo Ultimo Brigatista, quote, The operational hypotheses were addressed. How to stand still in Via Fani without attracting attention. How to block the cars. Among the various hypotheses, we chose to use a plate from the diplomatic corps, with which car to take Moro away. How to prepare the wooden box to lock him in and take him away. What should have been the fire group, what the support groups would be, what the escape route was. Moro, we called him Tuft. We wanted to eliminate all possible complications. The prime objective was to bring about the great setback to the state, Bonisoli later told Sergio Zavoli for Notte della Repubblica. To carry out this great counter-trial and to place ourselves as a point of reference for the entire variegated area of the armed struggle. We had the ambition of setting ourselves up as a party and therefore as a point of reference for the whole of this area. It was taken for granted that within an action of this kind, the problem of the release of the prisoners who were in prison would emerge. Also because this had been the case with the Soci action. And then it was in this tradition of the revolutionary movements to which we always refer. In the place of the decision to kill Moro, that too could be contemplated depending on the development of the action. As in the Soci action, there's a general objective of a political nature that one wants to achieve, and all the other subsequent things can never be determined with certainty beforehand. They are variables which, however, obviously are evaluated. So despite the gloomy nature of these meetings and discussions, Fiore recalled his meetings with the Roman column fondly. In those months, he bonded especially with Valerio Marucci. The way Rome's militants acted had taken me back in time, he said. They were big companions. They loved good food and sunny life rhythms. They recognized themselves strongly in their group and identified with the village they came from. Handsome villagers of a large metropolis. Valerio was the comrade with whom I had the most relations. A reserved type, not big words, but politically the depth was all there and the same impression I had for the other Roman comrades. They knew what they were doing and how it was to be done. For what little I have known him, Valerio always seemed to me to be a very intelligent person with a passion for guns. After the final meeting in February with the strategic management, still at Velletri, Valerio Morucci takes Bonisoli and Fiore out to the sea to practice shooting. Fiore again. From Turin I had brought down, by train, locked in a suitcase, my machine gun, a perfectly functional M12 that I had tested against a police station near Corso Francia, a weapon that the organization had purchased from police officers. Here's one of those moments where we reckon with the fact that the Red Brigades and at least one other left-wing armed group literally sourced machine guns from cops. There's no way of getting around it. It's very strange. The night before March 16th was tense, and not just at the Red Brigade's bases. 
A high-ranking police officer dropped by Moro's office on behalf of his boss to talk about security that day. It was pursuant to an issue that transpired on November 25th the previous year. On that day, the director of the Corriere della Sera, Franco Di Bella, had arrived at Moro's office when a couple of kids rode up on a motorcycle wearing balaclavas with a pistol in their bag. The armed escort saw what was happening and sounded the alarm. Motorcycle peeled out and escaped. When a visibly shaken Dibella met Moro, he said, quote, We live in terrible times. It's like we're in the catacombs. So on March 15th, the police had come to tell Moro that they were going to put an extra security in his neighborhood and around his residence, beginning on March 17th. It was to be one day too late, but also it's unclear if it would have helped since the security would have been at Moro's house, not on his route around Viafani or his office. As for the rest of Moro's day on the 15th, we have the testimony of his assistant, Franco Trito. Quote, On 15th March, when he had spent a long time talking to his students, and Marshal Leonardi was more alert and worried than usual. He had parked the car near a secondary exit. Moro went out shaking his assistant's hand and greeted him. Dear Franco, unfortunately... We will have more violence than last year. These are the last words I heard him say. Marshal Leonardi, by the way, was Moro's chief of security. He was a tall, dark-haired, and handsome man who was always pictured by Moro's side. The two had become friends over the years, Moro trusted him deeply, and Leonardi was extremely loyal. As the day ended, Moro returned home to Via del Forte Trionfale, thumbing through the evening papers and chatting with his daughter and son, Agnesina and Giovanni. He read a bit from his book, The Crucified God, written, in, written interestingly enough by a Protestant, and went to bed. A bit later in the evening, after most people had fallen asleep, Raffaele Fiore and Bruno Seghetti crept outside the house of the florist who usually stationed himself at the corner of Via Fani and Via Stressa, and with an awl, Fiore burst the tires on the florist's car to ensure he would not be able to make it to work on time the next morning. They were trying to cover their bases and make sure to minimize possible collateral damage. So... As day dawned on March 16th, Aldo Moro woke to a busy calendar. He has breakfast and leafs through the morning papers. L'Espresso is saying that he's directly implicated in the Lockheed scandal. La Stampa is more interested in the Juventus versus Ajax game that went into penalties the previous evening. Moro tucked himself into the backseat of the blue Fiat 131 with Leonardi in the front passenger seat as usual, and they left his house. With a white alfetta, the rest of his security detail following in line. The myth is that Moro was headed to Parliament, where the Prime Minister Giulio Andreotti's new government of national solidarity was to be sworn in. This notion helps firm up the construct that the intervention against Moro came from forces seeking to intercede against the creation of such a government. To wit, 
the national solidarity government, in which the communists would at last vote in favor of a fully Christian democrat government without abstaining, was the unprecedented result of Moro's tireless efforts. It did herald a new stage in the historic compromise, some would say. However, as we know, there are real reasons to believe that the communists were about to bow out. When you think about it, this move at the last minute to prolong the governmental crisis after having been brought right up to the moment of compromise, effectively leaving Andreotti at the altar like a jilted lover, would have made Berlinguer look like a real power broker, could have sabotaged the firmness of the Christian Democrats, and brought about a new snap election in which anything could have happened. It's definitely true that a lot of communists were displeased with the historic compromise as it was going along, and the Christian Democrats were also losing a lot of momentum. And, as we've seen, the Americans were pissed off about the historic compromise, but recognized that it was the only effective alternative. Despite being dragged, kicking, and screaming to the point, they accepted national solidarity as an Italian prerogative. Indeed, ambassadors, Ambassador Gardner's gloomy cables back to the State Department fortified a sense that the communist involvement in government was a foregone conclusion. Furthermore, the Red Brigades all say that the date was arbitrarily chosen and not at all related to the government cycle. Giorgio Bocca relates this sentiment from Roberto Ognibene, who took part in the drafting of the Spring Campaign's strategic resolution. Quote, Someone said that March 16th was chosen because that was the day Giulio Andreotti presented the new national solidarity government to the chambers. It's not true. That date had no political significance. That day was chosen and that was it. Anyone who had gone through these things knows it. The most trusted comrades are brought in from the columns, tests are carried out, inspections are carried out, and then it's decided we'll operate on that day. And who could have accurately predicted the day Andreotti would present his government? So, Ogni Bene is basically saying here that parliamentary scheduling itself is very arbitrary, and the idea is that the Red Brigades would have either had the foresight to plan it ahead of time or spontaneously set the date for an action as soon as they learned of that date are both remarkably unlikely. Roberto Fiore tells a very similar story. Quote, the only thing I remember is that we had assumed to carry out the operation on the 15th, but it was a Wednesday, and that day almost always the security guards of the Mondial Pol went on a round. There was, therefore, the danger of finding them in the way. We decided to postpone it for a day. The coincidence with the presentation of the new government was by no means calculated. While that was happening politically, was calculated, that is, the constitution of the new Andreotti government and the historic compromise. And last but not least, Moro himself was not at all headed to the political offices. Not Parliament, not Palazzo Chigi, he was on his way to preside over a student's doctoral dissertation defense. Tiziana, the student, was wearing her new dress before heading into Rome for the event when she received a call from her cousin Sarah, who worked at the Ministry of Interior. It was a call she would never forget. So, Moro's escort followed the typical route down Via Fani, and the role of alerting the brigades with a bouquet of flowers fell to Rita 
Algranti, whose husband, Alessio Casimiri, would play an integral role in the whole affair. Moretti was in a white Fiat 128 Giardinetta station wagon with diplomatic corps license plates, chatting with Balzerani, who stood on the street when he saw the signal and took the position ahead of the escort. So the flowers go up, Moretti drives in front of Moro's car, the dark blue Fiat 131, and the white Alfetta behind that that carried the rest of his escort. Gallinari later wrote, after seeing the action start to unfold, quote, There is no going back, there's no room for doubt, and you realize that the dozens, hundreds of times you've thought and discussed the possible movements and variations of the sequence of actions have created in you a familiarity with the environment, with the gestures, with the hypotheses imagined, which make you move like clockwork. The situation is as expected. The movement is the one studied dozens of mornings. Gallinari was to be one of the fire team, which also included Morucci, Fiore, and Bonisoli. For the event, they're wearing blue uniforms and caps procured by Adriana Ferranda at a specialty shop in Via Firenze. And on the uniforms, they're wearing light raincoats that will hide the long guns and sidearms that they're going to use. But there's a hitch. A car is going slowly in the lane, and Moretti realizes that Moro's driver is going to overtake them both. He decides in a sweeping move to overtake the slow car with enough pace to allow Moro's car to join the maneuver confidently. Enrico Fancy, who was in the Genoa column, says that Moretti told him, quote, I was in Viafani waiting for Moro. The action all played out there in those 70 meters of road. I had to let the two cars pass, pass them, and then break hard. If I had met a car coming from the opposite direction, the ambush would have failed. In short, we would have had to repeat it. It went well. I managed to overtake them and break. The driver of Moro's car managed to break without a rear-end collision. He didn't understand what was happening. He must have thought I was an incompetent driver, because when I turned around, I saw him doing gestures with his hands as if to say, Go ahead! At that moment, the comrades opened fire. At the stop sign, Moretti stops with Moro's cars behind. Balzerani takes out a machine gun and stops an approaching Fiat 500, which we later find out is driven by a plainclothes cop. She recalls, quote, Here we are. I see our car get off on Viafani with the other two behind it. I prepare to take my place in the middle of the crossroads, and at the first shot I take out my weapon. I have to block the flow of cars to keep the road clear for our escape route and prevent any unwanted intervention. I look in another direction and therefore do not see what's happening a few steps away from me. But what I feel is enough to imagine. No, that's not enough. Time is suspended, incalculable. The only dynamic element in the still unreality of the moments was the deafening roar of the weapons. I'll never get used to the strangeness of their unpleasant mechanical timbre. As if it surprises me every time. Sure, it's politics that drives the gun, but shot after shot, I leave a piece of me behind. While she's doing this, Two other brigadists, Alessio Casimiri and Alvaro Loyacono, block the other side with a Fiat 128, threatening oncoming traffic with long guns. 
The first shots from the fire team hit the Alfetta driver first, and the car slams into the midnight blue Fiat 131 in front of it that carried Moro. Marshal Leonardi turns to protect Moro and is killed with machine gun fire while in that position. Later, conspiracy theorists would suggest that bullets on the other side of his body suggested unidentified shooters from the other direction. Really, he was just trying to get Moro to crouch down in his seat. Amid the turmoil, Gallinari is supposed to attack the second car, the white Alfetta, but his gun jams. What I feared happens, he wrote. Halfway through the bursts, the machine gun jams. I instinctively pull out the gun I carry on my belt and continue to shoot as if nothing had changed. These poor people, the enemy I'm facing. I see it, but I don't really see it. The movement is automatic. Moro's driver, Officer Ricci, had helplessly honked his horn to get Moretti to move that station wagon, but obviously to no avail. The brigadists had built up Moro's escort as the most dangerous anti-terrorism special corps on the planet, a group of monstrous oppressors. Lo Ultimo Brigatista notes, however, quote, Domenico Ricci was anything but a member of any special corps. He was a man like any other a caring father and husband, originally from the countryside of Yesi in the Marca region, who had arrived in Rome, as did his brother Giuseppe, also a carabinieri looking for a job. He was not a gunslinger, and given the times and his anything but aggressive nature, probably unsuited for the role he had covered for years with absolute loyalty. Fiore had the assignment to kill Ricci. He says, quote, the others and I took out our machine guns and advanced towards the center of the street and started shooting. I remember pulling the trigger and my submachine gun, my M12, which should have been the best, immediately jammed. I was tasked with shooting the driver. The car behind it, being hit by the escort agents, collided with Moro's car. Domenico Ricci, who had not yet been hit, tried to free himself. He tried to make three or four maneuvers, back and forth, left and right. I remember it well because it was a dramatic scene. Moro had crouched in the back seat. I removed the magazine from the machine gun, put another one in, but it still didn't work. Valerio managed to shoot again and hit Ricci, and the car stopped completely. It was a fraction of a second. I was all intent on bringing the target to port. I was left with the image of Ricci, who was trying in every way to get out, and who instead, a few seconds later, was hit and collapsed on the steering wheel. Seeing this person die left me dumbstruck. So, Ricci had tried to swing around the right side of Moretti's car, but it would require pushing the car slightly, and Moretti stayed in the car with his foot on the brake to prevent that. Ricci can't reverse because the Alfetta has already slammed into his rear. Finally, Ricci's hit a few times and he dies. Remarkably, the machine gun held by Franco Bonisoli also jams after shooting into the Alfetta. One of the passengers, Agent Iozzino, had been hit, but he gets out of the Alfetta and he shoots back. At that point, Gallinari's gun had jammed, but Iozzino is hit again by Bonisoli with his sidearm and falls dead to the street. One of the Alfetta policemen, Moretti writes, 
manages to get out of the car. He's holding a pistol. Bonisoli lets go of the machine gun, grabs his pistol, shoots, and hits him. At this point, the killing is done. From the accounts of that day, we can be fairly sure that Morucci murdered Leonardi and then Ricci, while Bonisoli killed Agent Iozzino. It's uncertain whether the other officers in the Alfetta were hit by Gallinari or Bonisoli or both. Only one of them lived past the scene, but he died later in the hospital. So, now that the guns have fallen quiet, Moretti gets out of the white station wagon and helps Fiore, who's grabbing Moro. They grab a couple of Moro's bags from the blue Fiat 131 and pull him and the bags into the escape car, a big blue 132 sedan driven by Bruno Segetti, who's reversed up via Stressa at that moment. Morucci, Fiore, and Moro get into the 132 and Segetti drives away. Gallinari dives into the white 128 that Casimiri and Loya Cono used to block the traffic, and the three drive away in the same direction. And Morucci, Balzerani, and Bonisoli get into a blue 128 and follow course. Some 93 shell casings were collected from the scene of the massacre, with the most bullets coming from one single machine gun. It is probable that six guns were used in all, including sidearms by Bonisoli and Gallinari. It sounds to me like Morucci was the one who shot the most because his gun doesn't seem to have jammed. Some would claim that the brigades were far too unskilled for such a drastic action. Some on the left sort of glorified in what former Potere Operaio leader Franco Priperno called the geometric power of the operation, borrowing a term from Romantic nationalist Gabriele D'Annunzio. Others argued that there'd been a sniper involved, or a super killer who fired 49 bullets on that day, possibly from the right side of the road. Some even whispered about a German speaker who was present on the scene. One of the latest parliamentary commissions of inquiry, chaired by Giuseppe Fioroni, declared, quote, the wounds on the right side of Marshal Leonardi's body would not be attributable to hypothetical shots from the right side of the road, of which the police report that he, they did not find evidence, but a natural twist of the soldier who, turning in his seat, probably to protect Moro, would have exposed the right side of his body to fire from the Red Brigades. It also found that, quote, it is true that there was a mouth of fire that fired 49 shots by itself, that's more than half, but it has been demonstrated that this happened with not particularly high precision. From that weapon, only six shots hit the target, drawing Agent Iozzino. Bullets were found in nearby apartment rooms and walls. Valerio Morucci later declared, quote, Fortune assisted us. Actions like this almost never succeed on the first attempt, and instead that morning everything went smoothly. There was the inevitable jamming of some weapons, and on the way to escape we crossed some police cars. I don't know if they even recognized us or not. They certainly didn't stop us. 
That is not to say there were no mysteries on that day. Colonel Camillo Gugielmi of the Secret Services found himself in Viafani at 9.30 a.m., just 25 minutes after the shooting, saying he had an appointment for lunch that day. Right. Lunch at 9.30 a.m. As well, the head of the Special Anti-Terrorism Police, the Digos, was on the spot at 9.20 a.m., although he said he'd been talking to the commissioner about Moro's security when he'd heard the news of the attack that had happened just 15 minutes earlier. How did he traverse 8.8 kilometers in that span of time? His driver told the Parliamentary Commission that he had left towards the Trionfale district where Viafani is located at 8.45 a.m., 20 minutes ahead of the shooting. These are strange coincidences as yet unexplained. Marco Clementi, however, seems accurate when he states, quote, It seems hardly credible, as has often been written, that the Red Brigades kidnapped Moro with the direct intervention of preventing the birth of the fourth Andreotti government, since their strategy, as previously mentioned, was broader. They wanted bankruptcy of the Morotean policy, which they read as a step in the strategy of the imperialist state of the multinationals in Italy. Moro's name had been circulating for months as a possible target, and he was also chosen because he was the most vulnerable and the easiest to withdraw, something that the hostage himself would have complained of since his captivity. It can be assumed that Aldo Moro would have been kidnapped in the spring of 1978 regardless of the contingent political situation, government crisis, and new executive, and that the Red Brigades acted when they were ready for action. Furthermore, if the concomitants with the vote of confidence amplified the scope of the event, the fact ended up emptying it of the contents of the theoretical and political path of the Red Brigades, limiting its scope to the mere conjuncture. The Red Brigades also lost in the long run on this front, and the choice of March 16th would prove to be counterproductive, at least to their historical memory. And then there's investigator Judge Ferdinando Imposimato, who credibly argued in a 1984 interview with L'Espresso, quote, A simple truth has emerged. The Moro kidnapping was the work of the Red Brigades. This truth cannot be questioned by the avalanche of conjectures and inferences of the various experts on duty. Many aspects of the Moro affair are known which cannot and must not be questioned if one does not want to create confusion. The members of the executive committee managed the kidnapping and decided the fate of the hostage after having consulted the leading exponents of the four columns, the Roman column, the Milanese column, the Turin column, and the Genoese column. I know the answer doesn't satisfy those who see inference of all kinds, who see interference of all kinds, but this is the truth. It is now certain that there were no foreigners in Viafani, and that the Roman column almost entirely bore the brunt of the attack on the 16th of March. I exclude that there are links between the Brigate Rosse and Propaganda Due. Anyone who claims this shows ignorance of the history of the Red Brigades. So, 
Moro's been kidnapped. His escort has been massacred. And the Red Brigades are in flight. So, Fiore rides in the back of the escape car driven by Sigetti, a Fiat 132, sitting next to Moro, who doesn't say a word and is completely petrified. Moretti is in the passenger seat. The initial plan was for the blue 128 to lead the three-car convoy, but it was late in leaving, so the 132 driven by Segetti was first. Only Segetti, Moretti, and Morucci knew the correct escape route. Morucci explains the directions. Quote, the car with Moro and the support one should have traveled via Zandonai, which is a dead-end road, or rather one that has a dead end after one or two lateral crossroads. At the end of Via Zandonai, there's a residential complex with an electric sliding metal door which allowed passage inside the complex and the subsequent outlet onto Via della Camiluccia, about 50 meters from the open space between the French cemetery and Via della Farnesina. A false key had been made to access the residence, obtained from a telephone padlock key. The key was used to open the automatic door of the residence. Once the entrance to the residence on the side of Via Zandonai had been passed with the two cars, the gate would have closed automatically, preventing the passage of pursuers, and one would have arrived, once exiting the other gate of the residence, along Via della Camiluccia in Via Trionfale in an opposite direction to the foreseeable one. So, they kind of loop around back to Via Trionfale toward the city center to Largo Cervinia, where the 128 takes the lead, as it was supposed to have done from the start. Fiore explains the escape. Quote, Inside me, I was in incredible pain. We heard the sirens, we crossed a police car with its sirens blaring, which was coming in the opposite direction. Everything went as planned. We took Via della Camiluccia, and at a certain point on the right, there was a secondary road on which, once taken, we found the chain that allowed access to a private road. Somebody used bolt cutters to cut it, and the two cars went by. By this point, they'd driven off Via Trionfale into Via Belli, a narrow private road, and onto Via Casale de Bustis, where today there's a metal barrier. In those days, there's just a chain, and Moretti cut it off. After the cars passed, Balzerani got out to put the chain back into the place, and the killers took Via de Bustis to the quiet route Via de Massimi which then turns into Via Serranti and finally spills out onto the Piazza Madonna del Cernacolo. These are all really remote side roads that end up around the eastern outskirts of Centro Congressi Central Park, but we should note that they've gone far less than one and a half miles from the spot of the kidnapping. The streets are more or less lined with tall four-story apartment buildings, very typical of Rome, brick layered with white strips of concrete that thrust out into patios with lush flora overflowing the neat railings. The streets aren't run down or shady. You just wouldn't know them well unless you lived around there and studied them closely. Morucci had been let out of the blue 128 on Via Bernardini, which runs parallel to Via Massimi, where they had parked their Fiat 850 van. 
Segati left the 132 for a blue Citroën Diane, which is a funny-looking hatchback car that they've parked at the intersection near there. From there, the five cars, the Diane driven by Segati, the blue 132 now driven by Moretti with Fiore and Moro in the back, the 850 van driven by Morucci, the white 128 driven by Casimiri with Gallinari and Loyacono as passengers. And then you have the blue 128 driven by Bonisoli with Balzerani riding shotgun. Moretti drives the blue 132 around the grove of trees in the middle of the roundabout of Piazza Madonna del Cenacolo, parking about three quarters of the way around. The 128s also converge there, allowing Gallinari to get out of the white 128 and pass into the 850 van. At this point, both 128s leave the scene, going down via Balduina. The Diana, driven by Segetti, blocks the view of the transport between the 132 and the van, which was lined up about five feet from the left side of the 132. Moretti and Fiore cover Moro with a plaid sheet and move him into the van, where he's put into the wooden box. From here, Morucci gets into Segetti's Diane, and the two drive off, with Moretti and Gallinari behind them in the 850. Meanwhile, Fiore got into the 132, driving it down via Licinio Calvo, where it'll be left, along with the two 128s. From that street, the five brigadists stash their guns in a bag and walk down to Viale Medaglia de Oro, where they went into a bar. Bonisoli and Fiore go straight to the bathroom to change out of their airmen uniforms and then head down to the Terminus train station. Bonisoli gets off in Milan. Fiore goes back home to Turin. The other three, Balzerani, Casimiri, and Loyacono, take the bag with the weapons to a white Fiat 127 left there a bit down the way that morning by Murucci, and then they split up. Balzerani brings the bag with the discarded clothes to the base in Borgo Pio, where she stayed with Segetti. As for the 850 van driven by Moretti with Gallinari and Moro in it, led by the Diana driven by Morucci, it winds its way through more side streets where the Mesa of the Trionfale plunges down into the Valle Aurelia, cutting into secluded neighborhood roads. At this point, they're going down narrow paths, even cobblestone roads, that are very difficult to follow. This was how they're able to avoid checkpoints and traffic lights while accessing different neighborhoods. It's here that they've placed a second van, a light-colored one, where the plan is to transfer Moro again. Instead of the extra transfer, though, they decide they're just going to keep moving. Bypassing a traffic light through the circuitous route, they turn onto the four to six lane via Baldo degli Ubaldi, which has a median in the middle. And from here, they get back into the side roads, now in a neighborhood with religious buildings behind high walls that that keep the Brigadists anonymous from prying eyes in main streets. Via del Casaletto is the most opportune of these streets, not too big, but also a long stretch, taking them down south near the Tiber. Here, they drive into the parking lot under a supermarket where Germano Macari has been waiting 
with an Ami 8 Breck station wagon. Together, Moretti and Gallinari heave the box that contains Moro between the cars and put it in the station wagon. Moretti drives the Ami out of the parking lot to the base on Via Montalcini nearby. Gallinari walks there on foot. Morucci drives the van in another circuitous route with Segetti in the Citroën over to Piazza Cosimato. The brigadists abandon the two vehicles in that area and walk to Via Trastevere, where Morucci places a call to the Ansa Central Editorial. This morning we kidnapped the president of the Christian Democrats, Moro, and eliminated his bodyguards, the Leatherheads of Cosiga. Announcements will follow. Signed, Red Brigades. It was 10.10 a.m., just over an hour after the action on Via Fani. So, that is how the Red Brigades killed Aldo Moro's entire security escort and kidnapped the venerable politician, stuffing him in a wooden box and transporting him to the so-called People's Prison. From a strategic perspective, the operation had been a resounding success. From a tactical standpoint, the fact that at least three of their guns jammed suggests that the operation was quite hairy. The fact is that they didn't know how to use their weapons properly, and in the heat of the moment had to abandon the technical strength of machine guns for the simplicity of sidearms. Fiore seems to have frozen completely after his own gun jammed, watching with an air of helplessness as Morucci murdered the driver for him. In the immediate aftermath, he would say that he was embarrassed to be around the others. Balzerani seems to correctly articulate the sentiment more broadly shared by the brigadists when she told Zavoli that it was, quote, evident that the weight, the seriousness, the responsibility that we assumed with respect to the operation were adequate, according to our point of view, to the importance of the political proposal we launched at that moment. It is true that there were a lot of moving parts to the operation, but that it succeeded was due to the military approach to logistical planning and real-time determination rather than skill and finesse. However, as the news spread, so did the myth of the Red Brigades. Suddenly, they seemed invincible. The media disseminated stories that they were sharpshooters capable of hitting targets both far and near. They had done the unthinkable. They had truly challenged the state. Outside of the newspaper La Notte that morning, a procession of laid-off workers had formed to protest economic restructuring. The paper ran an extra edition, reporting out the following headline. Moro kidnapped, the escort killed, it was the Red Brigades. According to the young militant Mario Ferrandi, quote, the procession has a moment of amazement and subsequently of euphoria mixed with anxiety. There was a sense that something so big was finally happening that things would never be the same again. A sensation that lasted, in truth, a few hours, no more. Very excited, with the students taking part in the procession, we go to the school canteen, and on the way, we decide to use the money from the youth club's cash register to buy some sparkling wine, toast the event, and involve the canteen workers in this toast. It was a type of euphoria that the Autonomia newspaper itself defined as a sort of hard drug. 
It only lasted a few hours, because a mechanism was set in motion that made us perceive the consequences of that gesture. In the meantime, the Communist Party organizes a massive mobilization, closing some departments at Alfa Romeo and making the workers go home. I remember the mothers who run back to the kindergartens to pick up their children. And in the following hours, perhaps for the first time, we feel this popular rejection. But more on the reactions to the Moro kidnapping and the massacre in Viofani when we return next week to talk about the front of firmness. That's all for today. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pod. Thank you for listening. <laughs>